Hello, Bonsai friends. This is Evan Pardue of Underhill Bonsai, and welcome to episode 50 of Little Things for Bonsai People. And this time I am joined by Rob Kinpinski. Uh, how's it going, Rob? That's going great. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for coming to hang out with us today on the show. We're going to be talking to Rob. Well, it's just me today, but I'll be talking to Rob about his career in bonsai and his travels and his book that he wrote and all the other fun things that he does with his uh, for this time in bonsai. But uh, before we get there, I do need to mention that the podcast is sponsored by our amazing patrons over at patreon.com forward slash little things for bonsai people. Head on over there, become a bonsai best bud and hang out in the discord with the amazing people there. And you can hang out and just talk bonsai all day with them. Starting off the list with our $5 members at Tori Solis, Vicky Oths, Boyd Snellgrove, Ricky Ruins, Joshua Bentley, Snappy Chappers, Joel Jenkins, Justin Knight, Backyard Bonsai Australia, Greenwich Gardens, Taylor Peacock, Chase Retweet, just, uh, Austin Atkins, Karen Codswell, Uruin Bonsai Garden, Luis Torres, AC Castle, Bonsai Marine, JAS Potts, Chris Fassoon, and Timothy Arsenault. Uh, our patrons always get a shout out. So thank you guys so much for, hang- for hanging out and talking Bonsai all day and uh, helping us build our show. Uh, our show is also sponsored by Bonsai Bar, beginner Bonsai Workshop popping up in breweries across the Northeast. That's in Northeast United States. Bonsai Bar is two hours of tiny tree goodness disguised as a night out with friends. Come grab drinks, create a new tree, and watch your friends and family get the bug for Bonsai. Bonsai Bar is always looking for teachers and assistants, and you can listen to your. And if you listen to this podcast, you're probably already qualified. Sorry. Uh, bring your knowledge out to the bar. Apply today. Find event tickets, contact, uh, contact information, and more at bonsaibar.com. And last but not least, I'd like to thank Matt O'Donnell, our editor, for making this episode, I mean, making all the podcast episodes sound great, making this possible. He cleans up the audio and makes it sound easy to listen to. You head over to mattodonnell.com, fill out a contact form, and start your own podcast show with him or audio engineering program project with him because he's also a set bassist in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and he's an all-around awesome guy. I put that in the script because it it, it is the truth. I say it every time. Uh, so, Rob, how is it going? How is your... I know you just got back from traveling yourself, actually, right? Yeah. Yeah, I travel a lot through my professional career, which is now bonsai. Mm-hmm. I'm just an avid enthusiast. Yep. Uh, but you are... You've been all around teaching bonsai around the world, and that's... Yeah, I've had the privilege of uh, basically visiting every continent to either lecture, judge, demo, or do programs about bonsai. I mean, I've been to Africa, I've been to South America, all over Asia and Europe and the United States. I guess the one place I haven't been is Antarctica, which is kind of interesting. I had a plan to go to Antarctica because the company that I work for actually maintains the National Science Foundation, Antarctic Station, and they used to have a greenhouse that had a ficus in it. I was going to go trim that ficus, and they'd be the only artist that done bonsai in every actual continent. Yeah. <laughs> there are no trees in Antarctica other than that one tree. I mean, uh, you said that there was a chance to trim it, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, they had a uh, fungus. They they really had a greenhouse at the South Pole to grow tomatoes because, you know, they it's cold and they have a lot of long winters, and they got some kind of disease and it killed everything, and they never re- rekindled it. They just rely on shipments, so mm. that's over. Ah, uh, that's that's a pity. <laughs> <laughs> so I still uh, want to go to Antarctica. Maybe I can sneak a juniper branch or something to wire it. You know? Yeah, definitely claim all of them. 
Um, so, well, I've been doing bonsai for about 30 years. Uh, I first encountered bonsai back in 1983 in Korea when I was stationed there with the U.S. Army. And uh, like most people, I thought they were pretty cool, but I, I thought they were the set species. Most of these were also growing on a rock, which is really neat. It's probably why I like that style. You said in Korea? That was Korea, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They have a big bonsai community in Korea. And this was at the Seoul House in Korea, which is a uh, kind of like Williamsburg, Virginia would be to the U.S., you know, colonial America, the Seoul House is the older mm. Korean style, and they had these bonsai trees displayed. I have a picture of me kneeling in front of them. And, um, but being in the Army, you know, I, I was single, I didn't really have much time to do bonsai then. However, fast forward 10 years, I started working on the International Space Station because I am kind of a rocket scientist engineer. Mm. And I had the job of being the project leader for the Japanese module integration. And to do that, I started getting immersed in Japanese culture, including learning the language. And I said, ah, maybe I'll put a little Japanese garden in my backyard. And I went to the library and got a book out. It was uh, by um, a gentleman over in England. I'm having a brain fade. Uh, Peter John, his book. And... Um, you know, I started and I said, oh, this is about bonsai. These are pretty neat. And uh, then I moved to Houston to work at Johnson Space Center back in 93. And I just pulled an acorn out of the ground to transplant the back of my yard. And I started thinking, wait a minute, that's a train of pot. That's a bonsai. And believe it or not, I still have that acorn and it just turned 30 years old. Always been in a bonsai pot. Mm -hmm. It's a live oak tree. And uh, it actually looks, it's not a great bonsai, but I mean, not many people can say they have their very first bonsai, you know? I don't yeah. have number two, three, four, five, but I still have number <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, having having growing a tree from seed, that is something that me and Laurent actually talk about a lot. It's something that he really enforced. If you can grow a, 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 a tree from a seed with that amount of patience and then develop it for bonsai, that really is the heart of bonsai. Because uh, it, yeah. it doesn't take from nature. I've done it a lot. Yeah. And you you mentioned that quite a few of your listeners are young. And so I'm not that young anymore. I'm in my high 60s. But I will say <laughs> that if you start young and you grow seeds from trees, I guarantee you that they will outperform the stock market in value if you, <laughs> yeah. you know, learn what you're doing. So if you're looking for motivation as a young person to get into bonsai, you know, you can aspire to great things. But growing from seeds or small cuttings, is not a bad way to start because they do, as you learn more and, and they mature, they will earn, uh, earn in value. You might kill a few along the way. I mean, you know, face it, uh, we've all killed a lot of trees, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And uh, But the there's an art form, and I think through some of the activities that are happening in the United States, if you look at the prices, I mean, you were up at the National with this, you know, last month, some of the prices on those trees would have been unheard of in the United States 10 years ago. Um, many, many trees uh, sailing for big money. In fact, my tree, one of my trees at the exhibition, didn't go home with me. I yep. sold it to to a collection, to to one of the best gardens in the United States. It was quite an honor that they bought it. They paid a pretty good price. Yeah, uh, that was your Australian pine, right? There was the Australian pine raft. Yeah, I dug that out of the woods, you know, I don't know, 13 years ago. And uh, Again, I guess I should preface by saying, although I've had the opportunity to go around the world, I do live in Florida. Mm. And because I live in Florida, a lot of what you see written, at least the older books and stuff about bonsai, don't really apply to Florida. 
You know, I, I tell people, if you want to be a downhill skier, you don't live in Florida. You go live in the Rockies <laughs> or Blanchard. <laughs> if you want to grow trees, you want to live in Florida. Because mm-hmm. we have such a long growing season. Now, can we grow all the Japanese species? No. But, and this is a reason why I wrote my book, because my book is called Introduction to Bonsai, Growing and Appreciating Bonsai Around the World. I have seen bonsai all over the world. And and I love Japan, by the way. I'm a Japanophile. I love the culture. I've been to Japan 32 times. Uh, oh, wow. I've been to many bonsai shows in Japan. Uh, but I've also been to China three times. I've been to Malaysia a couple times. I've been to India several times. Australia, New Zealand, um, Indonesia, South Africa, all over Europe, so I, and, and South America, Central America, the Caribbean. And I see that bonsai is not just a Japanese thing anymore. The Japanese popularized it because of what happened after World War II, but there's great bonsai being done all over the world. Like, for instance, for me, my main inspiration for bonsai is Taiwan. Yes. Because Taiwan is straddles the uh, Tropic of Capricorn, so it has, or Cancer, I forget which one's the Northern Hemisphere, maybe Cancer's the Northern Hemisphere. Mm, sounds right. And uh, because Taiwan has high mountains, they have a wide variety of agricultural zones. They can go from temperate down to the tropical. And that's kind of what we have in Florida. From Jacksonville to Miami, you go from temperate down to tropical. And, and, and uh, so uh, I contacted all my friends around the world and said, hey, send me pictures of some of your trees. And so my book features trees from all over the world. And, and when then. I talk about the various stuff in the book, I, I address the fact that it really depends on where you live. You know, if you look at a lot of these books, people assume you're working on a Japanese tree in a in a North New York or Central California or whatever, but a lot of us don't have that. You know, we have people in Alaska that do bonsai. We have Florida. We got South Texas. Uh, so there is a lot of variety depending on the species. Yep. Uh, yeah. That I mean you covered a lot of uh, bases there as far as uh, where you're at and stuff. But uh, there. Hey, so your book, as far as that goes, I mean, this was. I have a copy in front of me right here. Uh, how long ago was this written? Oh, it was written a while ago. Um, what happened was I wrote a book called, it initially was called uh, Emotional Trees. Mm. And it kind of reflects my aesthetic to bonsai. I'm, uh, Laurent and I, let's put it that way, your visitor have a lot in common. And the bottom line, it boils down to, as an engineer, I always have a design goal. And when I make a bonsai tree, I have a design goal in mind. And I encourage everybody no matter what age, when you're doing a bonsai tree, Dang. have a design goal. You know, the, the most common design goal in bonsai is making an old tree, but that's not the only one. Look at Loren. He wants to design trees that grow on a farm planet. Mm-hmm. I designed a tree that looked like a kraken, the sea monster. And, you know, it, it, a lot of people around the world talk to me about that tree by its name. Um, same thing about my uh, tree called the uh, dragon's tail, black pine lamp. And, uh, um, and I've had guys from Japan mentioned how's dragon pine doing and, and stuff i mean dragon's tail excuse me and so having the design goal is critical and uh i wrote this book emotional trees that talks about how emotion should play into the art and if you just spent a week with loren you probably got a lot of that oh yeah i yeah. said to do a bunch of publishers they all rejected it they said it's kind of interesting but nobody's gonna want to read this so all right <laughs> that's fine i i have the book on my hard drive then about six months later a publisher approached me and said hey uh i know we didn't accept your other book but uh, we had one of our authors back out, and would you write an introductory book to Moan So I said, yeah. And they gave me three months. They didn't give me a lot of time. Oh, wow. And I did. I, I did cracked it, it out. And um, 
sent it to them. They published it. I never really liked the format that you, they basically look like they just use Microsoft Word and laid it out that way. And yeah. I, when I wrote the book, I envisioned a much more elaborate book type of style. And um, so when their rights expired after five years, there's a little bit more to it, but I don't want to get into that. I got the rights back and I made my second edition, which now you can get on Amazon. You know, if you order it on Amazon, they'll print you one copy. It's absolutely amazing. Yes. And it's all color and it is the design is kind of reflecting my, uh, the way I vision the book. And it starts off with pictures, in my opinion, of amazing trees from around the world. As yeah. I say, if you really want to understand bonsai, you have to understand that it's not a Home Depot, uh, you no. know, ficus on rocks. It can be a high level art form. And this is what a high level art form looks like. Better to go see them in person, but that's not always convenient. So here's a bunch of pictures. And then from then on, I just you know, and do a lot of different stuff. And people tell me it's not really an introductory book because I get into a lot of different topics, but it is a good intro, I think, for people. And I still have that other book. And and when I retire next year, I plan to um, to publish that other book. I, I'm going to call it um, Spark. I'm not going to yeah. call it Emotional Trees. And uh, subtitle is The Impetus of Design. Because frankly, my whole bonsai mantra revolves around what are you designing? Are you designing an old looking pine tree? Are you designing an ancient um, ficus forest? Are you designing a sea monster? Are you designing, you know, an alien life form? I actually have an alien. If you look at the very back of my book, there's a ficus tree with the moon in the background. I mean, I was designing alien stuff way before I met Lauren. So uh, that's why I said he and I are kindred spirits. And um, and that's why the book came about. You know, it, it's it's been a pretty good seller, and it's it's still out there. I don't market it or whatever. It's just available. And um, second edition have done pretty well. Um, as far as styles and stuff go, I know that's something that cu- that comes up a lot because we both. I mean, I, I on the previous episode that just came out, that's uh, going to be last week from now. Uh, I talk about my experiences with Lorette and styles and how we how we think about bonsai and how about we approach design because uh, the what I've gathered from him was is the explosion of the cosmos and then it comes back in and again because you're not trimming and you're kind of doing this thing back and forth. So for his style with cosmic, he, you can kind of see it cross over. You you had uh, showed a tree not too long ago on Facebook where you were like, "This is where I started with cosmic and now I'm refining it." So yeah, in a, way, in a way you followed his principle before, but you also have your own way that you approach it, right? Right. Again, I had a design concept and some people say I have my own style, but um, one of the most informative things that happened to me, believe it or not, was I went to the, um, several years ago, I thought we needed a national exhibition, having been to all these other national exhibitions. And so uh, some through circumstance, uh, I know a lot of people, I got in touch with Colin Lewis, and he and I were going to do a national exhibition. Yeah. And we we flew, I flew up to, to the Bronx, and we were going to do it in New York City, you know, because being a New Yorker originally, and Colin's living up in Maine, it would have been convenient, and he had a team that could help us do it. And then Colin said, why don't we all go to the Ginkgo and see how they do it, you know, to get an idea. I said, that sounds good. So Colin sponsored a trip. And Bill Belvanis and Suthan and I went with Colin to um, the Ginkgo. And uh, while we were over there, uh, turns out Nick Lenz was also over there. And, you know, Nick Lenz is known for using yeah. a lot of artifacts. And, uh, yeah, I, went, I never met Nick before, so I went around with him. And, and he was critiquing the trees, and um, he was pretty brutal. 
Yeah. And his main thing was helmet on a stick. This is a imported Shimpaka juniper, probably cost 50 grand. Oh, a nice helmet on a stick. Next. Oh, mm. Chinese, you know, Japanese helmet on a stick. And you know what I mean by that? It's yep. a full canopy. Uh, you know, may or may have may or not have an interesting trunk. And and then when when Nick went home, he wrote a blog post. It, they didn't call it blogs in those days, but he had like his own little webpage where mm-hmm. he did a review of the show and he didn't ever mention the trees in his review. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, was thinking about that saying, in a lot of ways, bonsai has evolved to a crest. Left, right, back, branch, and do this, that, and um Stuff starts to look the same. I went to, I took a friend of mine who was fairly new to bonsai years ago to the Kokufu Ten, the winter show in Bueno Park. And we separated, you know, because we're going to do our own thing. We have different ways of, and so let's get together. So that evening we got together and she says to me, if I see another Shimpaku juniper, I'm going to puke. And so individually, every one of those trees were world class. You know, they're fantastic trees. The collective whole, though, became monotonous. And mm. so those two factors had a big influence on me saying, do you really just want to practice craft or do you want to do, do art? And the way you do art is you need to try to make an emotional connection. You want your design to impact the viewers. And you can do that by making an old looking tree. And if it stands on its own, if you take one of those junipers and put it by itself and put it like in the Imperial Palace opening the hallway, which, by the way, I've been inside the Imperial Palace and seen their collection. It's very impressive, you know. Mm-hmm. But you take a cosmic bonsai tree, or you take my um, what I call Viper Strike, my Premna. That it's only three feet tall, but the trunk is actually twelve feet long, you know. So it curls back on itself quite a bit. It, it's you know conveying a different type of emotion. I have, I had my tree called the Kraken, which I don't have anymore because a guy came to my collection. Really wasn't a bonsai collector. He just was so impressed by it, bought it, made me an offer I couldn't refuse, you know? And, and so take a design. That's kind of the number one thing I, I tell all people that are willing to listen is you need to have a design goal. Even if you're a beginner, what are you trying to do with your design goal? Is it simply keep a tree alive because you're new? Okay, that's your design goal. That's fine. But if you, you want to make a tree that look like an alien clinging to the face of, you know, of a human, or if you want to uh, emphasize the flowers of an azalea or a bougainvillea, then, you know, your design goal is going to be different than if you want to make a replica of a Japanese juniper. And so, and then that kind of leads also into the, the display concept. And some people don't agree with me, but I feel like display is a totally different art form than bonsai. Yeah. And uh, in my opinion, display is more akin to home decorating or actually more specifically, since I grew up in New York City, window display you know what i'm talking about like if you were to walk down fifth avenue and look in Saks and then look in macy's mm-hmm. over the seasons there's a whole science and an art to displaying product in windows of these department stores you can see it in some malls too you know if the malls are higher end and um so what is your design concept for your display and this is where loren and i really hit it off in fact um yesterday I posted a picture of a little model that I built of a COVID man. It looks like a COVID virus on top of the Incredible Hulk's body. And Laurent loves it. He wanted one. I told him I would make him one, you know, it is it. and send him another one. This Laurent, it being an artiste, wants to portray the human condition through his displays. So he's not displaying just the tree. He's displaying the emotional connection. And to me, 
that means art has attained an art form. We're not just trying to replicate the scroll and it's done elegantly and there's Shibuya and all that stuff. I, you know, I like the Japanese stuff. I do Japanese displays, but I like to go way beyond that. And so not only do I design trees that have a specific goal in mind, but I'm also designing displays that are totally different. I'll give you an example. If you go look at my Mahogany Row Studio blog, you'll see some pictures, but I went Um, to the Winter Silhouette Show a few years ago, and I made a display of what I call the post-apocalyptic Chinese wax factory. I took all the trees out of their pots. I did not display the trees in pots. I made, quote, scenery just for the display. And after the display was over, I took the scenery apart. I actually threw the backdrop away because I didn't feel like bringing it home to Florida. And I heard one person criticize, oh, you're supposed to be elegant. No, I mean, have you ever been in the theater? The scenery is typically makeshift or whatever. You're just trying to get an emotion across. And that's what I did. At the end of that show, when I was taking it down, there was a note underneath the stand that I made and it was unsigned. It was, in a, I think, from a female based on the way it was written and the handwriting. But it was basically thanking me for the awesome emotional connection she had made to that. And I've never had that or I've never heard of anybody having that with a three-point Japanese-style display. What was the so, What was the, the name of the website we can see that on? So the oh, listeners it's a can Facebook page. It's called Mahogany Row Studio. That's what I call my studio. Ah, because okay. I do more than bonsai. I paint and I, I do sculpture. I do woodworking. And um, I'm into a lot of different things. I'm a weird mix of left and right brain. Oh, shit. I don't mind doing a differential equation or making a painting. I can do either one. <laughs> Mahogany Design Studio. Let me see. Mahogany Row Studio. R-O-W. So, R-O-W. Mahogany Row. Yeah, it's a Facebook page. Yep. I'm going to uh, I'm gonna go look it up so I can see. Because I'm interested. Mahog. I had that. Yeah, I, like I told you, my computer's in the shop, so I can't go along with you right now. Yeah. <clears throat> Studio Mahogany Row. Here we go. And you said that should be a recent post on there. Okay, here we go. Uh, I think I'm using the backdrop picture of that display, but it won't be recent. It'll be maybe last year or two years ago. But I, I would recommend exploring it because I do put some unusual stuff on on the page, and I'm not terribly active. I used to have a blog and it was unbelievable how much new variety you get from a blog, but uh, the maintenance of the software was so awkward and they, it crashed at one point and it was just too much work to recover everything. So I stopped doing the blog and uh, I switched over to a Facebook page. But again, for young people that are thinking about, you know, do I want to get into bonsai and what's the advantage? Again, you know, I mentioned there's a financial advantage. Uh, I also find that trees are quite an antidote to the everyday stress of life that yeah, um, they have their own language. I tell my you know my wife I'm talking to the trees and she looks at me like I'm crazy, but they do communicate <laughs> with us. And, you know, the, the way the branches hold themselves, like right now it's getting cool, a little bit cool in Florida and my premna, my headache trees, are yeah, definitely man. communicating to me like what is going on in here, you know? They don't really want to go through a season and I can tell just by looking at the leaves that they're not happy just because the weather's changing. And um, Enrique Testano, a friend of mine, he wrote a book called The Botany for, for Bonsai, which I highly recommend. I think that if you get it on Amazon. He talks about how trees release hormones when they need to communicate, you know, life-threatening things like insect attack or fungus or whatever. 
and the other trees do what they can once they pick up the hormone to change their chemical structure. So, I mean, they're living things, you know? Yeah, I heard this exact thing. I can't remember where I heard this recently from, where you're talking about uh, plants trying to communicate with not just each other, but with maybe even whoever can see the signals that they're giving off. Uh, I think there's something to it. I mean, you know, back in the 70s when they were hippies and all, they said you have to play music to your houseplants. And I have music in my garden. Uh, (laughs) Constantly? You know, whether it's quackery or not, I don't know. (laughs) Are you constantly playing music to your trees or is it? uh, No, no, I just, uh, (laughs) I like music. So when I'm out in the garden, I can't make music, but I know how to turn on the stereo. Yeah. So uh, I got these Bose speakers that are weatherproof and I I play music. And uh, the other thing is, I, I think, you know, as Americans... We're doing an, an Asian art. Okay, fine. All right. But Asians also do oil painting, which didn't originate in yeah. Japan. And they do it, you know, they have their own style. Oh, and every artist has their own technique. Don't be a slave to the Japanese way of doing things. I mean, I love it and I replicate it occasionally, but I definitely go way beyond it. And when someone tells you, oh, that's not how they do it in Japan, bring out the BS card. Because like I said, I've spent a lot of time in Japan I've, and I've worked with Japanese in the space program. And the Japanese is, you know, has the much diverse as the United States. I mean, they do have a little bit of group think, but for the most part, there's still a lot of diversity in Japan and not everybody in Japan does things the same, you know? Good. So you're free to do whatever you want with bonsai and, and, and go with your spirit. Don't let the masses tell you what to do. I mean, The Fountainhead would be a great novel to read if you want to get a feeling with that uh, about yeah. the architect that just you know designed his own thing. And um, when they didn't build it the way he liked it, he blew it up, <laughs> which is a little bit drastic. You go to jail for that. But um, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> so that's another thing. You know, Orion focuses a lot to differentiate by focusing on the species that we grow in America. So and, he's lucky that in out west they have a lot of uh, native conifers and some nice uh, coastal oak. And I wish somebody would do gamble oak as a bonsai. I don't know if you're familiar with that oak tree. Gamble oak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the leaves naturally are about the size of a um, ficus, you know, like a ficus microcarpal leaf. Yeah. Fully mature oak leaf that's only maybe three quarters of an inch. But I understand they're parasitic and they have to grow with something else. So they're kind of tough. But, um, I think the American expression of art is beyond just the species, that um, it's it's that design concept. So, you know, Laurent did the Joan of Arc thing. Yep. Um, I've done space exploration. Awesome. I've done traveling. I've done the Kraken, which is, you know, Western mythology. Um, I've done a lot of different displays with, with non-Asian mindsets. And mm-hmm. I have to say that I would say at least... 40% of the viewers didn't like it. And those are the bonsai cognoscenti that supposedly know what a bonsai is, you know? Yeah. But if you show it to the general public, much better reception because they they then perceive it more as an art. They yeah, don't perceive it as just a craft. That's an awkward conversation that me and uh, me and Carmen, my show host, have about that is, is it good bonsai if the everyday man can appreciate it and not really even understand the techniques and understand how you got to that point if if it's not tech like technically sound bonsai is it still good bonsai um so 
And I like to think that, yes, that any, anybody's tree is their tree. I mean, what you, like you're saying, like with art, if this is an art and second, it could be a craft. And I mean, there has to be the craft side of it, keeping the trees alive, keeping them healthy. That's the most important part, honestly, of the whole thing. And that's something me and Laurent talked about a lot. It was if you keep the tree happy and alive, and like you said, if your goal was to keep it healthy and happy, then good, you did it. But now we can start thinking about other things. So does the does the general public matter or does your, your bonsai peers matter? Well, as far as, you know, in my opinion, again, calling back to uh, Reardon and um, Fountainhead, all that really matters is what you want. Yeah. When I'll give you an example, I built a massive, uh, it was like four feet by two feet deep by three feet high shadow box. All, um, uh, what's not all the perspective? Um, I forget what called it. Yeah. Fourth perspective. Thank you. Fourth perspective diorama to display an elm tree. And when I built it, I put the Brooklyn Bridge in the background and I put the tree in front of a factory, the squib factory. My mom had told me that during World War II, she was a young girl, teenager. She worked at the squid factory in Brooklyn making first aid packs for the soldiers, you know, fighting the war. And she could see the Brooklyn Bridge from her little work desk. And that was my inspiration for that diorama. I was trying to replicate what my mom had described to me because it was, you know, it had a real hard emotional connection. Everybody that saw the display thought of the novel, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Because of the Brooklyn, I was not thinking about that at all. But you know what? That's okay. You hit a fun point. It was a personal design to me. I got tremendous satisfaction. I showed it three or four times, and then I took it apart. I still have the tree, by the way. It's one of my favorite bonsai trees. It's just a simple little Chinese elm. And uh, again, I did it for my self-satisfaction, but a lot of other people got satisfaction from it, which is okay. And and some people didn't like it. They said, that's not bonsai. Yeah. And I said, fine. It, to me, it's an artistic representation of the art. So really, you got to please yourself first and don't really worry about what the public says. However, let's look at what's in museums. We can't really look at bonsai because it hasn't been around long enough and the trees change, but let's just take something that most people are familiar with and that's yeah, paintings. So if you go to the Louvre and you look at, you know, the very beginning of paintings when they didn't really understand perspective, they, the paintings they did for the religion and stuff, they're almost crude. You would think, oh, that's done by a a grader, you know, but that is now in a museum. Okay. Then you look at Michelangelo, you look at uh, Tijin, one of my favorite artists, you look at Caravaggio and they're now photorealism, but that's before they had cameras cameras come out and you get the impressionists water in museum and commanding big prices now the people that bucked the trend and did impressionism and then it went even further if you look at picasso picasso made hyper realistic painting well i won't say hyper realistic paintings when he was younger then he eventually got into cubism and modern art and so he did it for himself right he struck out and then it became adopted so don't worry so much about what the masses say. Do what yeah. you feel is right. You know, that's kind of my guidance to whoever's one, you know, doing, wants to do bonsai. Now, you are limited. You got to keep the tree alive and the trees, you know, going to have certain characteristics because they're a tree. But just like a painting is limited, you know, normally to a two-dimensional form, there are, there are some collages and stuff. But um, I think it's a pretty good example. I mean, that that's the whole point of that emotional trees or the, the, the book I'm going to call The Spark is that 
bonsai can take inspiration and parallels to a lot yeah. of different fields, to ballet, to science, to the theory of time. You know, timelessness is such a key thing, and our, and our idea of time is changing now that try to capture that in a bonsai tree. I think one of the best trees to capture time, believe it or not, is mm. a banyan ficus. That's interesting. Because all those arrow roots and stuff, um, there's a there's a great science fiction book by Aldous called The Last Afternoon of Earth. And it's probably the most profound science fiction science fiction book you'll ever read. I won't I won't ruin it, but I would highly recommend Brian Aldous, The Last Afternoon of Earth. In it, he talks about how ficus trees are now the dominant life form on Earth. Yeah. Isn't that wild? And uh he was inspired because he was in the army in World War II and he saw the ficus trees in Burma. And then he went and wrote this science fiction story, which is, like I say, it's profound. It goes way beyond hey. 2001 or whatever. Um, I would highly recommend that book. And so I think you know that's how you can capture timelessness as a display. And But you can do more with that. And for instance, um, I had a ficus uh, microcarpa that um, I took all the arrow roots of it and using straws, I angle them in to increase the taper of the tree, but also to kind of make it look like uh, mm. a flying buttress. So again, my inspiration for that tree was the flying buttress, Notre Dame Cathedral. So when I displayed that tree, I uh, put it on a typical stand, but then I had a gargoyle next to it. And then I made a, took an iPad and made a slideshow just showing different shots of the flying buttresses uh, mm. and gargoyles from Notre Dame. And that was my display. Is it traditional? No, but you know, it, I, I conveyed a point. Some people got it. Some people did it, but that's okay. It was very satisfying to myself. Yeah. And so you name a lot of your trees too, like, uh, then, and that's because you're looking at them as more as representation, more of like how you name a painting. Uh, so, so exactly. like one of my favorite. Very few works of art are called tree number two, a painting yeah. number two. There are some yeah. artists that do that. But for the most part, you say the Mona Lisa. You don't say the Italian woman mm -hmm. in front of a village, you know, or you say the Night Watch. Or I mean, and so if you're making art, you and you can help convey some of your emotional construct with the name. So I had the Flying Buttress. I had the Kraken. I got um, mm -hmm. Night at the Revival. Uh, I mean, I have a bunch of different things <laughs> that that uh, raft that I sold. I call that the Crafty Raft yeah. because I actually um was doing a work telephone call from the woods sitting right next to that tree on a log and i'm doing the call looking at this little bushy thing covered with Maybe. a lot of deadfall because when australian pines shed their their um, branches they're not leaves per se it's a weird tree as photosynthetic bark and they make a big mess and i said there might be something underneath there and after my call was adjourned i went and moved all the deadfall and sure enough there was yeah. the beginnings of that rap so again you know the the names uh, and it's kind of fun when people refer to my trees yeah. by their name. Um, like one of the ones I like is the the name for uh, spice worm. It's an interesting name, especially for a bald cypress. Yeah, I made a mistake. I should have called it whatever the whatever Herbert called the spice worms. Like I forget the word or like draw or something like that. But but uh, the illusion is from a, from yeah. science fiction literature. You know the. Uh, um, it's that big worm coming out of the ground that yeah. pooped the spice. <laughs> and what was your what was your uh, reasoning for calling this bald cypress? Because this bald cypress, it, I guess it could look like one of those worms. Kind of, it kind of has like this weird blood shape to it. 
That's when you have to look at the tree uh, from the top down. It's totally hollow. So it's some calamity. Probably loggers nailed that tree 20, 30 years ago, and they stumped it. And so the inside corroded. And um, it, you know, sometimes you've probably seen this. Maybe you don't see this in Louisiana, but in Florida, sometimes bald cypress trees will callous over without making foliage hey. for a couple of years. They live just on their stored energy. Maybe that's what those knees have something to do with. And then eventually, um, so th this thing's totally hollow, but the chop has been totally callous in a very irregular manner. You know, again, it, you'll probably find it by my Mahogany Road Studio page. And then I just kind of made uh, multiple trunks. And, you know, you mentioned styling. You, um, I, I mentioned styles in my book, but frankly, I think bonsai styles are overrated yeah. as a concept. It, it just the human yeah. need yeah. to want to quantify things like, you know, Randy's doing that ball cypress page and he's, he's anal. This ball cypress tree is the immature variant with the tropical apex, you know, the yeah. tree doesn't care. The art doesn't care. What are you trying to, I know I'm not criticizing, but just the way people like to do things, you know, uh, and, you know, breaking rules. I would say a third of my trees, the number one oh. branches in the yeah. back, I mean, you know? That's interesting. Because that's the best way to achieve the concept that I want. Like um, I did a, uh, uh, there's a famous painting I like by Ong, Dominique King. He's a, he's a French uh, painter from late 1700s. It's called Roger Rescuing Angelica. And it's, it's just comes from uh, an old um, Roman Latin poem about a, the barbarians capture this princess. They tie her to a rock and they're going to feed it to a sea monster. And then the knight Roger Ruggiero comes and saves her. And a lot of artists have painted this, but uh, Ung's painting has really impressed me. So I've designed the tree Amen. to be Angelica. Sony Boggs made a really cool pot yep. that has a dragon on it. And I built a frame where I painted the knight. And when I display it, I'm replicating that art. Now, I don't Amen. tell anybody what I'm doing. They would, and I'm not many people are probably familiar with that painting, but eventually I might in conversation. But that was the inspiration for that display. You know, so I designed the tree with the design goal. I want to replicate a famous painting. And I would encourage people to do different things like that. Once everybody starts doing different stuff, you won't believe where bonsai will go. We don't even know. You know, you might get a genetic engineer that gets inspired and starts genetical engineering stuff that we can't even think about and, now, you know? Man, I mean, also, it's it seems that you're also interested in uh, military history as well. Well, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a fan. I was in the army and, and I did my time. And I was a combat engineer and, um, I wrote, uh, just a quick little, and I wrote another book called nation's fortress. My father-in-law was a, an infantryman in the Korean war and he had a tough time. And, and since I had just come back from Korea and got married to his daughter, I was the only person he told about. And so he, um, told me this story that, uh, basically led to some distress later on, like now they call it PTSD, but it was, mm. you know, never diagnosed. And I decided to write a story down because no one else had. Then I started thinking, well, my dad was a B-25 crew member in World War II. I need to write his story down because, you know, he had passed. And they said, oh, well, I'm doing that. I'll put my story down because I wasn't mm. in combat, thank God. But, um, you know, I had some interesting escapades in the Army. And while I was doing that, my wife said, well, look at this. And she gave me the genealogy of her family. And it turns out her family fought the American Revolution, actually French and Indian War II, all the way through, you know, World War II. So I ended up writing a book about all of that and started really researching military history. And I just, 
you know, war is a terrible thing, but it, it's such a um, intense activity that so much human development happens during war that it's just mm-hmm. interesting to study. You know, I don't condone war or anything, but uh, it is what it is. So uh, I haven't really integrated too much war in concepts into my bonsai. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I view both bonsai as more as a... Um, artistic expression not yeah. a militaristic <laughs> and I, i'm just saying that because uh some of your your stuff on mahogany row features uh miniatures and other things that are military uh based and i see that there's some of them are just for the fact that you want to cre- recreate to scale scenes and then take that photo and it look hyper realistic as well yeah some people say that oh you like small things that's (laughs) why you do models and small trees and stuff and that i I think really what it is is uh even though i'm an engineer i like to make stuff you know i like to use my hands i don't watch tv and um so either it's woodworking or sky make my own bonsai pots i mean i i just like to create at just the way i am and i think what's nice about bonsai is it, it really does encapsulate a lot of different fields you know, you could look at art. We've already talked about painting. You could look at ballet. Because, you know, when you go to a ballet, and my wife was a ballerina for a while, and the only thing you bring home from that is the memory of the ballet. So if you go look at a tree, and the ballet is continually changing, it, it's the same sort of thing. The tree is doing a ballet, and, just a much slower one. It's putting on branches, and it's growing, and you have to rely on your memory to receive it. So there, And there's parallels to a lot of different fields. Again, that's what that book, and, The Spark, is going to be about is going to be relating bonsai to a lot of what people would maybe not think of as fields related to bonsai design. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's just, I I haven't really got a lot of time. I didn't know where to find a lot of your work or your uh, stuff online. So it's, I'm just kind of thumbing through some of your stuff here. Um, but yeah, I can yeah. see a lot of, a uh, lot of just artistic approaches here for sure. Um, so for, as far as species go, I know that you said, like in Florida, y'all have a pretty decent range uh, as far as uh, temperate to partially tropical in some instances. So, what what species do right. you really enjoy working with when it comes to creating a lot of your artistic expressions uh, as opposed to typical stuff? Okay. Well, I'll just say you know, Florida is I don't know what four hundred miles from top yeah. to bottom. So we do a lot of zones. I lived in central Florida on the okay. ocean or near the ocean, maybe three miles from the ocean. And I lived south of Cape Canaveral, which means that I get the benefit mm-hmm. of the Gulf Stream. On top of that, I have a fairly large pond behind my house. So that also temperate. So my climate is probably comparable to South Florida, Miami, as opposed to just go to Orlando, which is only 45 minute drive away and they can do mm-hmm. tight maples. I can't. I have to pretty much stick to the temperatures, uh, even Japanese black pine, although I have a lot, they do struggle in my neighborhood, you know, in my garden. So um, my uh, favorite species are pretty much, uh, believe it or not, I like Chinese elm. I think I wrote, a, I, I do a monthly article for our club called Kempinski Corner. I did an elm article a couple of months ago because I think elms yeah. are underrated. Uh, I really like the headache tree, the Prevnaptusa folia, number one, because I was probably the first American to have one in the, in Florida, at least uh, Eric Weiger got them shortly after I got them. I think Eric's came via Pedro from Puerto Rico, but Pedro and I got them on our on our first trip to Taiwan in 2004. I had a permit, so I was allowed to bring it back. 
And from then I've spawned literally thousands of cuttings. I sold a few, but I've given away a lot and everyone else has taken cuttings. So Premlet is is a, a good species because they grow fast. Again, the yeah. downhill skiing comment, you know, we have a long growing season. They have tremendous leaf reduction and they can do pretty much any style that I find that they don't like yeah. cascade. Uh, I also like uh, ficus, particularly microcarpa or willow leaf. It's, it kind of depends on the day. Microcarpa, I think, is probably my preferred over willow leaf because microcarpa is more um, more flexible to different design techniques. You can graft it. Um, you know, the, the willow leaf is, no one really knows where yeah. willow leaf came from. I've helped Enrique, again, that same Mexican guy that I mentioned, he's a uh, PhD genetic engineer, biologist, and he's examined the DNA of the willow leaf and the ficus 89 and concluded it's the same tree and it's the same species DNA as ficus pertusa, but the willow leaf is a mutant and he can't get it pertusa to mutate, so he can't prove it. Anyway, so, and then of course, buttonwood, I like buttonwood and um, I also like Japanese black pine and Portocarpus, those are probably my top species mm-hmm. to work with. Hey, it's funny you say this stuff about the 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 ficus, uh, the willowy ficus. It's like a, a mutation that nobody can prove. It was the what's the eighty? It was the eighty nine, is what they they say. Well, yeah, ficus eighty nine was that jo- Joe Samuels was the first guy that discovered the willowy fig at a, a regular nursery down in South Florida. And he took cuttings, and all of our all of our ficus trees come. From Joe Samuels, just like most of the people's premier trees, they're all of the uh, United States come from me. Uh, Eric, you know, has some too, but it's the same genetic variety that I had because uh, Pedro got it for me on the same trip. Um, we were in Taiwan when we brought it back. The um, '89, there was a big frost, and a lot of Jim Smith's willow leaves died to the trunk, some to the roots, and several of them came back uh, with the bigger leaves. They, the morphology of the tree changed as a result of the cold, yeah. which is really bizarre. You know, it's not supposed to happen. And so about 10 years ago, I, I sent Enrique the what we call willow leaf and the ficus 89, and he had the capability to test the DNA and said yeah. the DNA is the same. So whatever the mutation is was not visible in the DNA, whatever yeah. that means. I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm not either, a genetic so. engineer. It's just a weird thing to hear. And he did get, believe it or not, he got the will leap to become the the eighty nine, or you know, he did get it to mute to revert. What he can't get is the producer to yeah. become the will leap. And he said he can't really publish a paper until he makes that connection. I don't know how much he's working on it, but uh, I'll see him. I'm going to Dominican Republic. I'm going to do a bonsai program in March, and I'll see him there. So we'll probably chat about that. That's he's a good friend of it's mine. It's very interesting to talk to. To a lot of Florida people, because y'all's bonsai world is radically different than most of the other Gulf Coast states, too. It's like y'all have recently brought in a lot of more, uh, I guess, more interesting uh, species. Like I remember we're talking with uh, Mike and sea hibiscus is very new. Um, oh, yeah, yep. I should have mentioned sea hibiscus. I like sea hibiscus, too. Um, I... Uh, I, I only have a couple because they, mm-hmm. you know, I have so many trees, but um, the they have the best, most beautiful leaf of any tree. Yep. It looks just like a heart. And if you've ever read Robert Stevens' first book, do you, do you know which one I'm talking about, which has the the silver leaf on the book. cover? 
that's a sea of biscuit mm. leaf. It's not a real one. It's, you know, a, a silver replica of one. Those books yep. are pretty hard to come by now. But um, I think I have one of my mm-hmm. trees in his book, actually. I don't have that tree more. I yeah. sold it. But uh, yeah, the sea of biscuits is nice because it's uh, very, very fast growing. It probably makes the fastest quantity oh, yeah. of roots of um, from any tree I've ever seen. They fill the whole pot up. Yeah. But. But don't, yeah, I mean, if you're ready to make a bonsai, don't cut the roots off. Mm-hmm. Let it be pot-bound because the pot-bound will help get the leaf uh, structure uh, smaller. That in yep. constant defoliation. Or you can do what Mike does. Mike got hold of the uh, small leaf yep. variety from Taiwan. I think I have a cutting somewhere in my yard. I haven't messed around with grafting it yet. I've done a lot of grafting on pines and on ficus. Um, I've been trying to do some citrus grafting, trying to get some Hong Kong kumquat on some non-producing really cool trunks, but I haven't had much mm-hmm. luck with those yet. Yeah. But again, that's the neat thing about bonsai. You know, you got to know botany. You got to know geography. You got to know um, chemistry about the watering. And I've, I've recently got saltwater intrusion in my well, which I understand is becoming yeah, a problem yeah. in New Orleans that too. But um, uh, I have a little micro channel probably that's going from my well to the ocean, which is bad. I've lost quite a few... few uh, quite a few expensive trees before I yeah. figured out what the problem was. But you just, you know, you go into so many different areas of bonsai. It's kind of neat in that regard that you can take it any different direction yeah. you want. Yeah, and I was mentioning the uh, the fact that you guys get species before the rest of the United States seems to start messing with them because of all the importing and uh, the new, I mean, like the, with it's past the age of the internet now where people have starting to travel and seek out more bonsai information like you said going to taiwan or going to uh new zealand or even european countries like other places like that and you see these trees and you're like and you and you're like what is this can i can i bring this back to uh to florida with me because most of the time you can't well you do got to be careful though you know florida has a the australian pines can for instance are considered invasive because of that deadfall that i mentioned and they, they will kill all the native, but the worst one is the Brazilian pepper tree. And um, I actually have, unfortunately, an invasive forest uh-huh. behind my house where the American red elm, red maples are dying and they're being supplanted by the pepper trees. And I actually dug one up three years ago to see if I could bonsai, and it's turning into a pretty nice yeah. bonsai. In fact, right now it's full of flowers. They, they didn't set, though, and I, I don't know why they didn't get pollinated. Uh, if they did make berries, I'd have to put them underneath my pool enclosure because we want to keep uh, them away from birds. We have a really invasive species that was brought in by early Europeans called uh, Chinese tallow. Uh, and they're... Yeah, I, I know about yeah, those from when I lived in Houston. Absolutely awful species. Like you said, the deadfall on the Australian pine, it's a... I'm, get, I'm assuming that's going to be like the monoculture uh, effort plant that where it just wants to completely eradicate its entire environment around itself and then just you know, come to maturity. But at least you can, at least they don't spread from the birds. That's the problem with Australia, with oh, the well, Brazilian pepper. The birds eat the seeds and scientists predict that in 200 years, Florida is just going to be one big Brazilian pepper oh, forest. Sucks. Unless they can figure out a, yeah, unless they can figure out yep. a way around it. So, I don't know. I mean, the love bugs were an introduction, you know, a lot of times we do stuff. So if you're going to bring stuff back from a foreign country, number one, make sure you got a permit. I have a USDA permit and follow the rules. And try to keep it. Yeah, there was an incident where 
Well, there was an incident where somebody brought something in, they found the longhorn beetle in Seattle, and they destroyed like mm. every tree within a mile radius or something of that, which included a boatsai nursery. This is going back about 15, 16 yeah. years. I mean, so. as people's interests uh, continue to grow in different cultures and different places that they go, uh, I mean, we just, that's how bonsai is. We want to experiment. I mean, find new species. These are great. Um, new discoveries that we're making but like yeah there has to be a lot of precaution mm -hmm. taken and i know there's a couple of uh states that just won't like within the united states just won't allow you know certain plants just traveling through and it's just there's zero, zero tolerance yeah like florida and, won't allow citrus yeah. we have agricultural inspection stations along the highway i, I will say this though since you, you said a lot of your listeners are you know newer to us and that is I think it's okay to experiment with new species, but I think you should also try some of the, the proven ones so you're not totally wasting your time because some species long run just aren't going to cut it. And I also would like to say, you know, uh, I did a Kempinski Corner article about this a few months ago is that don't start with a little stick in a pot if you can. You know, I mean, it's okay to start some from seeds mm -hmm. if you have the space and the time and the money because it is going to cost. But, um, you know, if you want to carve a nice statue, you're going to need a pretty good stone to start with. And so if you can afford it, once you've got some confidence down about keeping trees alive, look for the most interesting material you can get. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why I don't do a lot of junipers, because I've seen what junipers in Japan mm, look like, what they look like in Taiwan. <laughs> we don't really have that kind of raw material no. available to meat. They have it in the deserts. I mean, I've gone, you know, all over the deserts of the U.S. There's amazing junipers and the guys out west are mm -hmm. taking advantage of it but we don't have that in florida so i i don't have zone envy i just enjoy what other people have i don't just i don't covet what they have i just like enjoying it we have plenty of other species that we can use you know bald cypress trees we have you can sort of collect bunwoods i mean that you know that bunwoods gets into the dirty secret of florida most bunwoods that people mm -hmm. have basically been stolen yeah. from the government you're not supposed to collect barn ones. So and, any... um, you can get some that are legally collected because um, they, uh, when the Corps of Engineers put in all these irrigation ditches like 120 years mm -hmm. ago, bugs have grown in there. And now they're being torn down to make condos. Yep. Those will be legitimate. But the ones taken from the Everglades and from, mm -hmm. that's sad. We had bonsai artists actually got written up in the book, oh. The Orchid Thief, where there was a book about stealing orchids. Yeah, I don't know if you read that book. They made a movie about it, but the movie was really bizarre. The movie was... I saw the movie. Yeah, it wasn't really about the Orca Thief. It was about writing... You know, I don't remember exactly, but I remember the movie didn't follow the book. But in that book, the this says, yeah, and the great Cypress Preserve, the Cypress trees are disappearing because they made a bonsai harvest. So I don't know exactly <laughs> who they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they raped in an area... Because in very south Florida, the bald cypress trees are naturally mm -hmm. stunted. They don't grow like the yep. ones you have I've in Louisiana. I've seen a few of those. So they're limited for preserve. So, but yeah, I was I was lit I was about to say that uh, this seems like a good point to kind of uh, wind it down and kind of call it a, a, a day on this one. Um, so yeah, yeah. I just wanted to uh, do a, say a few quick things with you. Uh, I know that we talked about your mahogany row site on facebook people can go see your work there they also can pick up your book uh introduction to mm -hmm. bonsai by uh robert kempinski uh that's k-e-m-p-i-n-s-k-i 
for our listeners who are just on the fly listening to this, you can also refer to the title of this episode. Uh, will your will your new books, the uh, Spark, be coming out soon? Probably next year, sometime. Okay. Like I said, I haven't written. I just would have to. Um, uh, the tricky part is getting the permission to use all the mm-hmm. photographs that I need to use in it. You know, if, you know, if I'm going to use like a statue of David or something, I don't plan on that one, but I would need the uh, permission. Yep. So I'm working on that. And I also need to retire. <laughs> so when that happens, I'll have more free time. <laughs> uh, can can anyone see your work anywhere else that you can think of? Or is that kind of cover it? Well, I mean, I've been, you know, just Google Rob Kempinski Bonsai. You'll find, you might find remnants of my old blog. Bonsai Empire did an interview. I was president of BCI for, for several mm-hmm. years that I was on the board. And um, some of the BCI magazines might feature some of it, but mostly just, you know, Google search. And if anyone's in Melbourne and they like bonsai, that's one thing that's neat about bonsai is you can visit. Most mm-hmm. people are Definitely. open. And so you're welcome yep. to stop by. Y- y'all heard that. If y'all are in uh, Florida, near, near Melbourne, Florida, just hit Rob up on his Facebook page. Uh, he's a really yep. nice guy. Uh, so, and then just to kind of shout out a few things for the show real quick. Uh, we say this at the end of most episodes. Uh, go over to underhillboneside.com, go read some of my blog posts, or go over to Underhill Boneside store, which is directly linked off of that website to go check out what I have in stock as far as supplies go. Uh, for Mike Lane, go over to ketsuneboneside.com, go see his seasonal offerings, and uh, he's also in Florida, so uh, if anyone makes a, a boneside road trip down to go see Weigert's, maybe hit up uh, Mike as well, hit up uh, Mr. Rob here, he said he's welcoming, uh, so there could be a lot of fun to be had there. Uh, for Carmen, you go over to uh, Becoming Bonesaw on Instagram and check out her bonsai things and stuff that she's doing with Michael Hagedorn over in Portland uh, she, d- during her apprenticeship. So, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, one more thing to put out there. I only have a few shirts left in certain sizes, but if you go over to underhillbonsaistore.com and go to Little Things for Bonsai People, we have our own little tab on there. Uh, I have these shirts printed. I've mentioned them several times in the past, but uh, I do. I'm only going to run certain designs on certain color shirts and then i'm going to switch it up and then get new designs or switch the colors so it's kind of a limited offering on these on these shirts so like i said have, head over to underhillbonesaistore.com little things tab on the top there and you can see what we got left we don't have much uh but yeah uh thank you so much for hanging out rob this has been a good time it's been very insightful uh to kind of dig dig in and you know, see how your brain works on bonsai. I know you think a little bit different than most. <laughs> yeah, it might be scary. <laughs> yeah, we got a little got a little deep there, but uh, there's more there's more to be said, I'm sure. And uh, wouldn't mind having you back on in the future if you got the time. I know it's with bonsai people, it's very hard to schedule things. But yeah, yeah like great. I said, thanks for hanging out, and uh, I will talk to you next time, Rob. You have a great one. All right, yes, sir. 